Jesus is rejected at Nazareth. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph, and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him, and Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about the villages teaching. Children ages three years to kindergarten are now dismissed to Little Landing. Thank you. Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is so good to worship our great God together this morning. My name is Andrew Ross. I'm one of the pastors here at The Landing. Pastor Brent and his family are out of town this weekend, but Lord willing, they'll be back next Sunday and we will be continuing in the book of Revelation, but I know they appreciate your prayers as they are gone. But today, I am thankful to dive into Mark 6 with you. Currently, our youth are going through the gospel of Mark on Wednesday nights, and it's been a joy for me. I pray it's been a joy for them as well. But before we go any further, let's pray one more time and ask for God's help. Father, we ask you to bless those going to the little landing. We pray that you would give the teachers your grace to teach your word faithfully and clearly and cause the seeds planted there to bear much fruit. God, we pray for ourselves. Be with us as we hear your word preached. We do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. No one needs to hear from me this morning. We desperately need to hear from you. So would you speak, Lord? Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are in Mark 6, 1 to 6. And to understand this passage well, we need to look back at the events leading up to chapter 6 to get some context. At the end of Mark 4 through chapter 5, Mark gives us four rapid-fire stories that display the power of Jesus over all things. So at the end of chapter 4, we see Jesus calming a storm on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples are making their way across the sea when a massive storm catches them and their little boat is going to sink. But somehow, Jesus is peacefully resting in the back of the boat while all this is happening. And the disciples come to him and they say, don't you care that we are perishing? And Jesus gets up and instantly calms the storm with just a few words. Then they get to the other side of the sea and see a man with a legion of demons and he approaches Jesus. And no one has been able to help or control this man. It says he lived among the tombs and he broke any chains or ropes that the townspeople used to try to restrain him. But Jesus, with just a few words, he casts the demons out of this man and it says he restores him to his right mind. And then right after that, Jesus and his disciples go back across the sea and Jesus heals a woman who had been having a bleeding problem for 12 years that no doctor could fix. And then on top of that, after all of those things have happened, Jesus raises a 12-year-old girl who had died back to life. 
So at the end of chapter 5, we're left stunned at the power of Jesus. Jesus has power over nature and storms. He has power over demons. He has power over sickness. He even has power over death. And all the people who are receiving Jesus' miraculous help are very different. You have young and old, Gentile and Jew, men and women. So there's, it, the whole point is seeing there's nothing Jesus can't do. There's nothing he can't do. The omnipotence and supremacy of Jesus over all things is on display. Then we get to chapter 6. And Jesus is going to his hometown with his disciples. So if you were one of Jesus' 12 disciples, what would you be anticipating? What's going to happen when you go with Jesus to his hometown? We probably would be thinking more of the same. More people hanging on Jesus' every word, more demons being cast out of people, more people being healed. But that's not what happens. Look again with me at verses 1 through 4. It says, He, Jesus, went from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. So Jesus goes to his hometown, which was Nazareth. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't considered his hometown. Didn't spend much time in Bethlehem. It wasn't where he did a lot of growing up. But Jesus did spend a lot of his growing up years in Nazareth, which was a very small town. Probably at most 500-ish people would have lived in Nazareth. It was the kind of town where everybody knew everybody. If you and your family had moved to Nazareth at this time, you would one day be going to synagogue and somebody would say, hey, I know you, you're that new family that moved into so-and-so's place. We've all been talking about you. I would assume that would happen in a small town. So most of these people would have known Jesus and Jesus' family, some of them for a very long time. And it says that Jesus went to his hometown with his disciples and he began teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue. Usually when Jesus visited a town, if you read Mark 1 all the way through 6, you'll see Jesus is continually mobbed by people. He shows up and people flock to Jesus. They want to hear him teach. They want to see the miracles that they've been hearing about. But Here, that doesn't seem to be the case. No people are flocking to Jesus to be healed. Demonized people are not running to Jesus to be set free. There are no excited crowds to see Jesus. But he does what he normally did. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. And it says that many who heard him were astonished. People were always astonished at Jesus' teaching. It says in Mark 1 that he taught with authority, not as the other scribes and teachers of the law. But this group's astonishment quickly turns sour. They start asking him questions in an attempt to belittle Jesus. That's what they're doing with those questions. Those aren't honest questions that they ask. They're trying to put Jesus back in his place. Look at it again at the end of verse 2. I'll give a little emphasis so you can see this. Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? 
They aren't asking honest questions. They're not trying to figure out who Jesus is. They're saying, who does this guy think he is? Who does he think he is? Where did he learn these things? We know he didn't study under some great rabbi to learn all these things. We saw him grow up. He's just a carpenter. And now he's got all these things to say to us. What's he playing at here? And then at the end of verse 3, it says that they took offense at him. They found him offensive. It was scandalous to them that this guy from an ordinary family with no formal education who grew up in their small town would come and teach them and parade around like some miracle-working prophet. They were astonished at his teaching. They don't deny his miracles, but they don't believe. And Jesus responds to them with a proverb that was common back then. He says in verse 4, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. They stumble because they are so familiar with Jesus and to them he seems so common. And their response is dishonor and unbelief. But it's ironic because the very things they find offensive are the very things that should have made them worship Jesus more. The very things that they're finding offensive are the very things that should have increased their worship of Jesus. Think about it. If they would have seen who Jesus really is, they would have said, the Messiah, the Lord of glory, came to live in my little town. He came to live with me. He humbled himself to live with the likes of me and worked a normal job and was raised in an ordinary family like me. He didn't live in some palace. He chose to be with us in our small Nazareth town. You worship a God who loves like that. What kind of humble God does that? A God who comes down and takes on flesh and we know more than just living in little Nazareth. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross to save sinners like us. They, the very things they stumble over are the very things that should have increased their worship of Jesus. So if we step back, we should see these people from Nazareth as a warning to us. I think we should see them as a warning to us. And here's the warning. Never mistake familiarity with faith. Never mistake familiarity with Jesus with faith in Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus is no replacement for faith in Jesus. This is especially a warning to those of us who've grown up in families that taught us about Jesus and were part of faithful churches that preached God's word. It's a warning to those of us who would say that we've walked with Jesus for many years. We can be so familiar with Jesus We can get very comfortable with worship services. We can get so good at listening to sermons that we know right where the preacher is going before he gets there. We can know our Bibles really well. All wonderful things, good things, but none of those can replace faith in Jesus. When familiarity is substituted for faith, Jesus becomes a stumbling block and offense like he was to the people in Nazareth. So I encourage us, ask yourself, Are you only familiar with Jesus or do you also have faith? Do you have faith? Do you simply go through the motions and know all the Bible stories, but you don't trust Jesus as your Savior who died on a cross for your sins and rose from the dead and you'll be with him forever? Do you believe in him? Maybe you're here this morning or on live stream or listening later and you find yourself like one of the people in Nazareth. You find yourself offended 
by Jesus, offended by what the Bible says. The people in your life who genuinely love Jesus bother you. Maybe you're familiar with the views Christians have on any number of hot-button issues, and it's scandalous to you. If that's what it means to follow Jesus, if you have to believe that, if you think that, then I don't want any part of that. If you're offended with Jesus, let me just lovingly challenge you this morning. Please hear this. Let me just lovingly challenge you that maybe the problem isn't that, or maybe the problem is that you don't know Jesus the way you think you do. Maybe you don't really know him the way you think you do. You may be familiar with Jesus. You may know what the Bible teaches, but have you ever seen Jesus as your loving Savior? Have you ever known him as the glorious God that he is? Have you ever really tasted and seen that the Lord is good and all his ways are good and right and perfect? Let me give you a silly illustration. I'm sure there's better illustrations than this, but what I could think of. I'm, I'm sure there are better, but hopefully this is helpful. Growing up, my family was given some really nice camping gear. Nice big tent, sleeping bags, camping stove, that kind of stuff. And for a little while, this didn't last for super long, but for a little while, my parents really liked the idea of our family getting away and bonding together over camping. So we, during the summer, for at least a few summers, would do that. We'd get away several times and we'd camp. But as I got more and more familiar with camping, I need to confess to you, I hate camping. <laughs> I really do. I'm sorry if that's offensive. <laughs> But don't get me wrong, I, I'm all for getting outside, I'll enjoy hiking, go to Jay Cook for the day, beautiful, great, wonderful, but after being out in nature for a day, I want to go home to my indoor plumbing and take a real shower and sleep in a real bed. Some of you are with me, most of you might not be with me, that's okay. Now, if you love camping, that is great. That is wonderful for all of you who like to pretend that you're pioneers and feed the mosquitoes and in some absent-mindedness, pay money to sleep outside, go for it. I love you. I really do. I love you. Now, whenever I've, had, whenever I've confessed to people that I hate camping, they, they almost always, if they're campers, say to me, well, you just, you just need to come with us. Like, you just need to do it this way. You're missing this. If you came with us, you would love camping. And I really appreciate the encouragement, but... I am willing to accept that in God's providence, he mercifully chose that I would be born at a time where we no longer need to camp. And it's wonderful. It is good. So I'm ready to help you campers see the light before you go full Amish. I'm ready to help you. But here's my point with that. I know that I'm missing something when it comes to camping. There's something I don't get. I can't see it. And it's not simply a lack of information or being unfamiliar with camping. I'm familiar with it, but I don't know it the way people who love it do. I'm blind to the beauty and joy of camping, and there is something missing in me for that. And if you find yourself stumbling over Christ, could it be that your offense with Christianity, with Jesus, with the Bible, with Christians you know, is that you don't know Jesus for who he really is? You're missing something that those who are trusting in Christ have. You don't have faith. You don't have faith, and so you find Christ offensive. If that's you, ask God to open your eyes to see. 
Ask God to give you faith to remove the blinders and stumbling blocks. The best news in the world is given to you. You know God has loved us so much that we are all sinners. And yet God, in his great love for us, has sent his only son to come and live a perfect, sinless life that none of us could live and die in our place, take all of God's wrath for our sin. And he died and he rose again so that for all who believe in him, there is now no condemnation, only everlasting joy with him. If that's not beautiful, if that's not the most life-giving news to you, ask God to help you see. He won't turn you away. He will help you see. Don't you want to see Jesus? One more application here before we move on. Maybe you do have faith in Jesus, but you're struggling and your faith feels very weak. Maybe, not like the people in Nazareth, you have faith, but you find yourself just coasting on your familiarity with Jesus. It's very easy to do. You know the right things to say, you know the right things to do, and it's so easy to just say the right things and not pursue God. Instead of pressing into God by faith, you're just getting by on your familiarity with Jesus. And you find, if you were honest, that your passion for God is getting colder and colder and colder. If that's you, Christian, there's great news for you. God loves to increase our faith. God loves to increase our faith. Go to God and humbly confess your unbelief and that you need Him to increase your faith. Ask God to help you see how great and glorious that He is. Is your heart dull? Is there sin that has a hold on you? Are you so fixated on other things that Jesus has become back of mind? Christian, run to Jesus. Run to Jesus. Go to Jesus like the man in Mark 9, 24 where he says, I believe, help my unbelief. We all have to say that. All of us who trust in Christ say, there's unbelief in me. I believe, but Lord, help my unbelief. God can increase your and my weak little floundering faith. Don't keep coasting on your familiarity. Press into Jesus. So let's look at the last two verses together, verses 5 and 6. It says, And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went among the villages teaching. Notice Jesus' response in verse 6. It says that he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marvels because of all the people. They had every reason to believe and they didn't. They had a close-up view of Jesus. They knew him. They saw him grow up, many of them, and they still don't believe. And Jesus is amazed at their unbelief. There's only one other occasion in the Gospels where it says that Jesus marvels. We see it in Matthew 8. Look with me. It's in Matthew 8, 5 through 10. It says, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, He marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. 
So the two times Jesus marvels, that it says Jesus marveled, was when people who had every advantage and opportunity to believe didn't, and when this man who had little to no advantage believed and showed amazing faith. If Jesus were to ever marvel at the landing, may God help it never be because of unbelief. May it never be because of our unbelief. Pray that the Holy Spirit would be ever increasing and strengthening our faith. Would God cause us to have bright, shining hope in the midst of dark days because in faith we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen and are eternal. If Jesus ever were to marvel at our faith, it won't be because of us. It won't be because we're so great. It won't be because we're so good. It'll be because he supplied and sustained our faith. So we must pray. Hebrews 12, 2 says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. So we cry out, we believe. Help our unbelief. But also, I want you to notice something else here. In verse 5, it says, And he, Jesus, could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What does it mean that Jesus could do no mighty work. I mean, what do you mean, could not? Could not and Jesus don't really seem to go together. One option would be that could do no mighty work means that Jesus was not able because of the people's lack of faith. Without people having faith, Jesus was rendered unable to do mighty works. Now, if you're squirming, that's good, because I don't think that's true. It doesn't make any sense of Mark's gospel or the rest of the witness of Scripture. If that were true, that means that Jesus' ability to do mighty works was dependent on the faith of the people around him, which I don't know how that would work. If he's walking through a crowd and Joe Smith comes up and he's got really weak faith, you know, got to get further away from him because Jesus' power starts decreasing, get around people with lots of faith. But not only does it seem somewhat silly, just from looking at the Gospel of Mark, we know that isn't the case. For example, in chapter 4, when Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples didn't have any faith. They weren't exhibiting any faith. They didn't go to Jesus and say, Lord, you can fix this storm. We're just waiting. We're just getting you up and saying, whenever you want, we know that you can calm this whenever you feel like it. In fact, Jesus rebukes them for their lack of faith after calming the storm. Look at Mark 4, 39 and 40. It says, And he, Jesus, awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Their lack of faith didn't render Jesus unable to calm the storm. And the man with the legion of demons didn't show any faith, but Jesus cast out the demons. When Jesus fed the 5,000 later in Mark 6, the disciples didn't exhibit any faith saying, Jesus, why don't you just make bread and fish? Why don't you just feed them? But he did. And after Jesus rose from the dead, it took the, many of the disciples some time to believe that Jesus was really alive. But none of that faithlessness ever hindered Jesus' ability to do mighty works. There are plenty of times in the gospel where he says, your faith has made you well. But actually in Mark, there are more examples where faith isn't even mentioned at all. It even says at the end of verse 5 that Jesus did heal a few sick people in Nazareth. So Jesus could still heal despite their lack of faith. He did heal some. So praise God that he is not dependent on us or our faith to do anything. 
Praise God that that's not the case. How many times have you prayed for something, but you didn't really think it was going to happen? You didn't really think God would do that, or maybe even could do that, and yet God did it. Praise God that he's not dependent on our amount of faith. I believe that Jesus could do no mighty works because he would not do mighty works. The thing holding Jesus back is ultimately Jesus. Behind their lack of faith, it's ultimately Jesus. Jesus sees their lack of faith, and therefore Jesus stops himself from doing mighty works like he did everywhere else. This is what he was doing everywhere else. And he says, I'm not going to do it here. In part, because Jesus' miracles were secondary to his message. The miracles attested to the truth of his message and the truth that he really is the Son of God. And if these people won't hear the message, they won't see the point of the miracles either. But I would say not only that, I think Jesus would not do many mighty works in Nazareth because he is doing something else. He's showing judgment on their unbelief. I think that's what he's doing. He's showing judgment on their unbelief. If they will not believe, if they will not see, then Jesus moves on. And at the end of verse 6, it says that he did move on to teach in other villages. That's judgment. Jesus moves on. And why does Jesus choose to show judgment here? didn't have to. One reason is because he's setting an example for his disciples. He's setting an example for his disciples. Look at the very next verses, verses 7 through 13 with me. It says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and, put on two tu- and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So Jesus gets his 12 disciples together and sends them off to preach the same message he preached and to heal people just like Jesus did and to cast out demons just like Jesus did and to show judgment on those who would not believe just like Jesus had demonstrated for them. In verse 11, Jesus tells them, shake the dust off your feet. If they won't hear you, shake the dust off and move on. The disciples saw Jesus preach, saw him cast out demons, saw him heal the sick, and saw him show judgment by moving on when they would not hear. So Jesus is sending out his disciples to do the same thing. He was setting them an example. So as we end, two responses we should have. First, and we've seen this, but we need to see it. We have to see this from this passage. We should humble ourselves and pray that God would help us not reject him in unbelief. Pray that we wouldn't reject him in unbelief. We should see the people of Nazareth as a warning to us. We don't want God in judgment to pass us by because of our unbelief. We want to hear the warning of Nazareth and have it propel us to pursue Jesus and not reject him. That's how God would have us respond to this passage, that we would read this and say, God, help that not to be me. I don't want to go that way. I want to press into Jesus. God, would you help me not be offended by you ever to remove any stumbling blocks that would keep us from you. So we should see this as a warning. And then second, we should see mercy in Jesus' judgment, which gives us hope. We should see mercy in Jesus' judgment, which gives us 
hope. Jesus was showing judgment on the people of Nazareth for unbelief, but Jesus is also being merciful even in this judgment because he goes to the villages nearby and teaches and does miracles, and the people of Nazareth were sure to hear about it. It's not like they never heard from Jesus. Again, they had more opportunities to believe, and we know that while Jesus' own family is rejecting him here, many of them did end up believing in him later. Many of them did. In verse 3, it mentions Mary and James and Judas, mentions those three, and we know that all three of those for sure ended up believing in Jesus later. James and Judas, later known as Jude, wrote books of the Bible. And in Acts 1.14, it says, All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. They believe in Jesus. They didn't reject him forever. So even in this judgment, God is merciful. God saves people who today are denying Jesus, who today are offended by Jesus, who today are embarrassed by Jesus. So take hope. Don't stop praying. Don't stop preaching the gospel. Don't lose hope that those you know and love who are rebelling against Jesus and filled with unbelief that that they're just too far gone. God can save. And I would say specifically from this passage, we can take an extra encouragement, especially for those who are familiar with Jesus. For those who grew up being told about Jesus, those who have rubbed as close to Jesus' shoulders as possible, and they still don't seem to believe. Do you ever marvel with those you know and love who don't know Jesus, who know all about Jesus, who are very familiar with Jesus, and you marvel and say, why don't they believe? Why don't they believe? They know the truth. Why do they seem so allergic to it? Why do they stumble over that? They know better. They know. If you look at the end of Mark 3, you'll see Jesus' mother and brothers opposing Jesus. In chapter 6, they're mentioned, but in chapter 3, we see them openly opposing Jesus, not just quiet unbelief. And they are trying to stop Jesus in his mission. They say, Jesus, what are you doing? Stop going. Come home. We're going to talk some sense into you. And you wonder, how could that be, especially for Mary, Jesus' mom? I mean, she she had an angel of God tell her before she gave birth to Jesus what was going to happen and who Jesus is. I mean, of all people, she should not have been surprised that he's going around preaching. He's the son of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. And she gave birth to him as a virgin. I mean, you can't get much more familiar with Jesus than that. You can't get much closer to Jesus than that. But even she was offended by Jesus for a time. And now... She's worshiping him with her sons, with Jesus' brothers forever. So this passage helps us pray in faith. It gives us faith as we pray to say, those that are familiar with Jesus can be saved, even as they are rejecting him. God may, for a time, allow them to walk away, but he can save them. Those who are offended and embarrassed can be saved. God is merciful in judgment. So don't lose hope as you pray. God is greater than our unbelief. So we should see the hope and the warning in this passage. May God give us all the grace to be men and women of faith for his glory and our joy. Let's pray.
God, we thank you that your arm is not too short to save. God, as we approach the Lord's Supper, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you that you sent your Son to come and live in little small town Nazareth to humble himself and take up the cross and die for sinners like us and rise again. God, if there are any in here who don't know you, who are offended by you, would you draw them to yourself? We pray for those we know and love, those who are familiar with you, those who aren't. Would you draw them to yourself, Lord? Thank you so much that even in your judgment, there is mercy. Thank you so much for your grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.